As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the show. Justin Briley here once again to bring you the answers to your questions with N.T. Wright, Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And the show brought to you in partnership as usual with N.T. Wright Online and SBCK, Tom's UK publisher. And of course, Premier, for whom I'm the Theology and Apologetics Editor. Today on the show, we're asking, did it really happen? Questions on things like whether historical scholarship undermines the credibility of the Bible. Uh, were the early Christians? really as persecuted as is claimed and what about that passage in Matthew 27 a disputed passage about saints rising from their graves so lots of interesting questions today and thanks to all those who have been tagging us in the past couple of weeks to say that Ask N.T. Wright came out top in their Spotify end of year rap good to know that so many people have been listening across the past year and by the way leaving a review and rating us on your podcast provider helps others to discover the show too. Uh, people like DS Oyster Bay, who led, left this particular review from the start of the podcast with the catchy guitar chords on through Justin's gentle and intelligent moderating. Oh, and did I mention that modern day spiritual giant N.T. Wright? The show is a joy and what is best about thoughtful, undiluted, Christ-centric via media Anglicanism. Thank you very much for that recommendation. Um, really helps when people put the word out about the show. If you want more from the show, including regular updates, bonus content and more, do sign up at askntright.com. For now, let's get into your questions. Well, Tom, today on the show, we're sort of returning to familiar territory. Um, frequently, people ask questions around the historicity of the Gospels, of the Bible in general, and, and those are what some of our questions relate to today, but also questions around the historicity of martyrdom claims after the closure of Scripture as well. So we've, we've got a number of different things here. Um, let's start with Alex in Virginia, um, who wants to know, how should Christians approach evidence from historical biblical scholarship that seems to undercut Christian claims? I'm thinking here of things like evidence that Genesis and Deuteronomy were written after Hosea, Amos and Jonah, or that the virgin birth may have been made up to fulfil a mistranslated prophecy in Isaiah 7. Well, I suppose you can only take every example, you know, by itself, Tom, one at a time, and, and there may be more that Alex is thinking of, but perhaps you could speak to these specific examples and then generally the, the issue of, of what we do when certain, you know, areas of biblical scholarship seem to uh, cause cause questions or doubts about uh, yeah. as, aspects yeah. of the history. I, 
at the risk of sounding like a very, very, very old man, um, uh, I'm not very, very old, merely very old, um, I have to say that over the last 50 or more years, I have watched these questions slosh to and fro without actually disturbing too much that's really going on. Um, when I was younger, I used to read scholars who said, oh, this passage in Paul contradicts that passage in Paul, so it's obvious that Paul just had hiccups when he wrote this, or, or maybe that bit wasn't written by him, or it was a later interpolation. And again and again and again, in my own major field, Pauline studies first, I have seen, as we have found out more about the world of Second Temple Judaism, etc., that what appeared contradictory from a modern Western point of view wasn't so at all. And there are all sorts of convergences which we just didn't see in the 1960s or 1970s. And likewise, in the stories about Jesus in the Gospels, again and again, people, well, how do we know what, what Jesus could have possibly said that or whatever? And as people have probed back and somebody has found some coins with symbols on them or somebody has, has uh, translated a new scroll which gives us insight into how Jews were reading such and such a scriptural text or whatever, all sorts of things come up which make us say, actually, looks as though the Gospels reflect pretty accurately the situation in um, Jerusalem and Galilee in the 20s or 30s of the first century. That doesn't mean that automatically we have proved historically that everything they say is true. In ancient history, almost everything we know in ancient history comes from one source and one source only. Occasionally we have two or even three sources like Tacitus and Suetonius and Valeus Paterculus for the early years of the empire so that we can get a bead on it. Or we've got sources like Cicero and Livy and so on for times um, in, in the period leading up to the, the death of Julius Caesar and so on. But usually we've only got one source for most of what we know in ancient history. And historians say, well, if we can make sense of the period by telling the story this way, fair enough. And I want to say we can make sense of the rise of early Christianity by saying that there really was somebody called Jesus of Nazareth who really did announce that this was the time for God to become king on earth as in heaven um, in Galilee and Jerusalem and went to and fro doing stuff to show what this would mean around that time. This doesn't mean that I have automatically validated somehow every story in the Gospels. That's a different question to do then with what we believe about scripture, what we believe about why God uh, caused these particular books to be written in the way they were. So that would be a faith claim rather than a history claim, though ultimately the two would converge. So that's where, that's where mm. I would start. Um, and people get hung up about this because they've been told the Bible is the word of God. And if you question anything, then watch out. It's a slippery slope. Well, it can be, but it needn't be because there is this thing called history and it actually does work and it does put us firmly on the map for the first century. Mm. Well, maybe sticking just with, you know, and as, as Christmas is, is almost upon us uh, in terms of when this show will air, um, the virgin birth. Um, I mean, obviously, Alex has heard that perhaps this was just invented at some level in order to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah 7, um, which many people have claimed, you know, was simply a mistranslation. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the young woman shall give birth, mm -hmm. uh, but the virgin uh, is, is the way it was translated. I think in the, um, I'm trying to remember the, 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 the version that 
Matthew, that that uh, would the, the the gospels might have been working off for, for that but but how how do you handle this one anyway tom <laughs> well of course one of the funny things is that that line from isaiah 7 um is indeed quoted in um in Matthew chapter one verse twenty three, and the, the the word is parthenos in Greek, which which would normally be a virgin, and the and the underlying Hebrew is alma. And if you look at the concordance, the Hebrew concordance to alma, and see where else it's used, um, it isn't necessarily the word that you would use automatically for a virgin, but it is a young woman often a young brackets presumably unmarried woman and um you just have to check out the references and see how it occurs my problem is this twofold one there is no evidence for any jews of the period taking that verse as a prophecy of uh, a, a messianic king uh, especially of anyone being born of a virgin um, so that there's no reason to suppose that the early Christians would have been thinking, oh, well, if we believe Jesus was Messiah, he, he's got to do this thing because other people reading this text say this is how it must have been. It's more that something has happened here, which the early Christians probably rather horrified by when they think about it, because... Obviously, it opens them to all kinds of slurs which have been trumpeted in our own day, you know, that maybe Mary was raped or maybe it was just she and Joseph before they were wed, etc., um, etc. Et and so to avoid slurs like that, which you find in John's Gospel, interestingly, when the Judeans say to Jesus, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, even God, which looks as though there are rumors about Jesus' birth being a bit strange and people saying, oh, yeah, we know what mm -hmm. that was about. Um, and so the early Christians may have been embarrassed about this, but instead of hushing it up, they scratch their heads and say, well, well, actually, th there was that line in Isaiah. Maybe that's maybe that's what it was about. The other thing to say, as well as the fact that it doesn't um, appear to have been a well-known prophecy at the time, is that Luke, who has a much fuller account of the angel visiting Mary, etc., etc., doesn't have that quote at all. Um, so that if that was why it was being made up, you'd have thought that Luke would have said, there we are, haha, ha, we've, we've got it. So um, th there's, there's a very different and rather strange account in, uh, in, in the beginning of Luke. So it's more mysterious than we might imagine. And certainly it would be too much of a, an easy, cheap shot to say, oh, the Christians just made that up because. And indeed, one of the arguments which I think tells in favor of the, we should say virginal conception, by the way, rather mm. than virgin birth, of the virginal conception is that of course, at the time, there were all sorts of myths and rumors about the Roman emperors like Augustus, that he had actually been born of a union of a god with his mother, etc., etc., so that it might look as though this was simply aping what pagans were saying about their kings. And I think, again, that's such an unlikely thing, especially for Matthew to do, um, because Jesus is the, the, the true king. He's not just like one of those silly pagan emperors that... I don't think this would have this story would have got about unless there was a good solid basis to it. Now that doesn't, in and of itself, prove no. anything. But um, what a story like this 
wants us to do i think is to rock back on our heels and say hang on who is god anyway what is this all about who are god's people what what is a messiah supposed to be and do how does that work and then stories which mary the mother of jesus herself would have known and she was obviously a prominent figure in the early church as it says in the early chapters of acts um then things would have been told Mm. and mulled over and people been astonished by and then when the gospels were written um that this this would be laid out so it it is then ultimately a matter of what you believe about god the other thing to say is if you take out of scripture the stories of the virginal conception you lose basically two and a bit chapters a bit of matthew one a bit of luke one and two that's it Mm. nothing else at all in scripture and in christian theology hinges on that the resurrection however which often is paired with that people talk about you know mary's womb and jesus tomb as being the two great sort of things to worry about the resurrection take that away and you don't have any early christianity at all um the gospels would not have been written if jesus had not been raised from the dead so we have to be careful about putting too much weight Mm. on the virginal conception i believe it i've explained how i think it comes to be in matthew and and luke but it doesn't it's not load-bearing theologically in the new testament in the way that many people imagine Mm. it should be before we come to the next question about uh, the historicity of scripture in in matthew 27 just briefly uh, that that other issue alex raises genesis and deuteronomy were they Mm. written Mm. after other books of the old testament even Um, though chronologically obviously it's it's presented as before yeah um yes it would be easy to imagine that oh well there you are genesis so obviously adam and eve were working on the early chapters of that and then (laughs) enoch writes the next bit and somebody writes the next bit but actually i don't think anybody actually believes that um some people still do believe that moses wrote the whole thing um that would be very very much a minority position these days most people i think including devout so-called evangelical scholars would be happy to say that from a plethora of early sources scribes in babylon during the babylonian exile have got the leisure when they're away from the land to put the whole thing together to take all kinds of disparate sources and to make a fresh straight through treatment of the whole thing i have no problem in saying that something like that happened because this is genesis is not simply uh, let's tell you how the stuff began genesis is a wonderfully complex and rich and dense book which is setting out all sorts of things about god and creation god and israel god and god's purposes for israel and the world and it makes all sorts of sense to me that people would be collecting much earlier sources some of which might well go back to moses some of which might have been put in shape by solomon's court um, uh, scribes and so on but which had been mulled over and prayed over and worked over not a big deal um just like it's not a big deal to me whether the gospels were written in the 40s or 50s within a decade or two of jesus death or in the 70s or 80s or 90s um, a, a generation later i think they were a bit later than the first and a bit earlier than the second i think they're probably 50s 60s and possibly 70s but it's not a big deal um that that's not the sort of books they are as though tomorrow morning's newspaper is the only thing that can tell you the truth about what happened um yet yesterday in politics or something Mm. um you know a year or two down the track when sources have been mulled over might be a better time to get a perspective on it well, look, let's turn to our next question. And, and this is one I've heard frequently as, as sort of causing some people 
you know, question marks over the, the historicity of one particular part of, of Matthew 27 uh, in the sort of the Passion and Resurrection accounts. Um, and, and three different people actually got in touch with essentially similar sorts of questions around this. Uh, Emily, uh, Anne and um, Tyson, um, all in various parts of the United States. Um, so Emily says, um, when it comes to Matthew 27 and the reference to bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, being raised and appearing to people when Jesus died. Well, what did that look like? Were those people raised in their new heavenly bodies like Jesus would be? Or were they coming back to life to die again later? Um, how were the people meant to process pe people coming back from the dead? Um, just got lots of questions around that that brief mention in Matthew 27 and in Iowa similarly curious about that um it says every time i read it i get frustrated because i want to hear those stories why isn't it developed and explained further what sort of resurrection was this was this the the new life resurrection um what happened to them did they go back and die again uh tyson in in indiana um this extraordinary event he says that, um verse 53 speaks of them going into jerusalem and appearing to many people uh, i can picture sitting at the dinner table with my family hearing a knock at the door and there stands king david um uh, it would certainly compel me to believe in jesus what, so why doesn't it get more attention later in scriptures obviously it's only um in matthew 27 that this event is recorded and i've heard many skeptics or people who simply maybe take a different perspective on what matthew's doing at this point in scripture tom saying we're not necessarily meant to understand this as in this instance as a historical reference that it's something more like a kind of um a bit of poetry almost that, that bubbles up from matthew at this point to sort of expressing something about the the new creation uh so so where do you fall on on this often contested <laughs> bit of of the um the you know the passion narrative in matthew where apparently bodies rise from the dead at the moment that jesus dies yeah yeah it, i share the frustration of all the people that you've quoted um i have puzzled over matthew 27 i have written about it um i've i've banged my head up up against it for exactly the same reasons and i've also um been aware that some of the early fathers i can't now remember exactly who it was that said this um said quite matter-of-factly that these people were in fact still living in jerusalem because they had since they'd been raised from the dead they were now immortal now i find that very difficult to, to credit because i do think that would have left far more trace if it was known that there mm. were some people who'd lived on and on for subsequent centuries because having been raised from the dead they weren't going to die again that that would be very very strange my my hunch is that matthew himself if we asked him would say that these would be like lazarus in john 11 or like the widow's son at nain that they would be raised from the dead they would appear to many but they would have to die again or um you know one can think of almost humorous situations that that like the ghosts in ruddigore when um the the, the moment comes and it's dawn again they have to go back and lie mm. down again as though well that's enough of that <laughs> so my question really is what is Matthew trying to do at this point and the danger of course is that if you start saying oh this is just a glorious picture of of uh, in a poetic vein and we're not meant to take it literally then it's quite a short step certainly in some people's minds to saying well actually that's the same with Jesus resurrection itself and clearly for neither Matthew nor any of the other early Christians would that have been the case Jesus resurrection was a genuine thing leaving an empty tomb behind and with a new sort of body for which there was no precedent we're not told that about these people and indeed it's a very odd um i'm always struck by the oddity of what is actually said not just the body of bodies being raised but it says uh, that that um 
the, the many bodies of the saints who had slept were raised, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. So this is, they're, they're, they're brought back to life when Jesus is crucified, but then they wait for the three days, mm. well, the, from the Friday through to the Sunday, and then after Jesus' resurrection, they, they then mm. follow Jesus, mm. as it were, out. Um, and there, there are other early Christian traditions which seem to be speculating similarly, like the so-called Gospel of Peter, which has a very strange scene about this, obviously a late second or third century work, but is still mulling over what's actually going on. And this relates to something which um, actually still persists very much in the Greek Orthodox Church, well, the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church. If you go to an icon shop in Greece and ask for an icon of the resurrection, you probably won't be given um, an icon of Jesus himself rising from the dead. You will be given an icon, and I've, I've actually got one on the wall in my room here. I can't show it from where I'm sitting which is of Jesus raising Adam and Eve from the tomb, that that's what really was going on, that um, the Greek Orthodox Church soaked itself in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So with Jesus' resurrection, there's a sense that this is the moment when God is giving new life to the whole of humanity, in some sense or other, with other qualifications down the line, no doubt. So that Matthew may have had something like that in mind, He's certainly got Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, Ezekiel 37 in mind, some of those mysterious Old Testament prophecies. And it's as though, you know, I've often said with Colossians 1, when Paul says the gospel was already preached to every creature under heaven, I think what that means for Paul is that with Jesus' death and resurrection, a shockwave went through the whole cosmos so that the whole world now knows in its bones that evil has been defeated and new creation has been launched. And then Matthew would be saying, yeah, and there were these strange rumors that, my goodness, when Jesus died, it was as though the very rocks were rent. And, and yes, they, they talked about people coming out of the tombs um, because new creation is going on and it's just very mysterious. And I think Matthew just leaves it as a mystery. Mm. We wish he hadn't, but that's, that's the way it is. So I don't have a good answer, but as I walk around it, those are the questions which come to my mind. And I think it's meant to heighten our sense of the impact of the cross, that the cross is the defeat mm. of death itself, mm. and that this worked um, short-term, close-up and yeah, personal sort of in ways which were totally unexpected yeah. and which we don't know what their lasting result it's was. It's sort of sent a sort of cosmic shockwave that isn't yep. quite sort yep. of fully understood, but you yep. know yep. i heard that Absolutely something like that. really stro weird happened things happened just in, in those few days yeah. yes. yes yeah um well moving from the accounts in in the gospels and and so on to, to sort of accounts of what happened to christians after uh, the closure of scripture um some have argued says magnus in sweden that the early christian persecutions in the roman empire were fabricated uh, by Roman collusion. Um, how do you respond to that? And I'm thinking of um, some scholars such as uh, Candida Moss, for instance, who several years ago wrote a book along these lines saying that martyrdom accounts were exaggerated. And I think making sort of reference really to the fact that modern persecution claims can sometimes be overdone as well. But but I mean, what do you make of this? What, and to what extent, you know, do you think we can rely on the testimony of, of the, the, the early Christian church as regards the sorts of trials and persecution they faced? 
There's there's all sorts of evidence for various persecutions. I mean, I think of the martyrs of Lyon in 177 AD, who um, uh, quite clearly this is this is a, a valid historical story. Whether that was a sporadic thing in southern France, whether the citizens of Lyon were determined always to kill Christians, um, we're not sure. Arrhenius comes and is bishop immediately after that persecution, and he writes about it, which is basically how we know about it. Um, and it but it looks as though this is something which is sporadic and local, and it's not the case that right from the sort of 50s of the first century through for, until the time of Constantine, the Romans are always killing Christians, because when Pliny writes to trade which is roughly 110 AD from north, what we would call northern Turkey, saying, I've got these people who are called Christians. They're clearly antisocial. They're a nuisance. What should we do about them? Trajan says, well, of course, if they're proved to be Christians, you have to kill them. But um, let's not have too much sniffing of it out. And let's not have people informing about it, because that, that's quite out of keeping with the spirit of, of our age, which is this amazing <laughs> sort of Roman patronizing thing. Yeah, it's OK to kill them, men and women alike. But, but don't let's have people uh, sneaking on them, because that's really <laughs> yes. rather nasty. We don't like that. Um, and, you know, so the, the fact that Pliny has to write to Trajan for advice about what to do uh, with these Christians tells us that there was no kind of absolute mandate. You find Christians, you kill them, that's it. And that later on, when you get the amazing stories about um, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, which we're not sure when to date that, it's somewhere in the between 130 and 160, somewhere in that area. Um, Polycarp is on trial for being a Christian, and uh, the, 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 the magistrate wants to let him off because he knows he's an old man and he's respected in the community. We really don't want to do this to him. Um, but he says, look, if you'll just offer a little pinch of, of incense on, uh, to Caesar, then that'll be fine. I'll let you off. Um, and, and, of course, Polycarp knows that will mean denying mm. Jesus, mm. putting Caesar above Jesus. And Polycarp has that wonderful remark about Jesus. I've served him for 86 years and he's never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, my savior? And king and savior are, is Caesar mm. language. So he gets executed. Um, so this is happening sporadically. Um, I don't think it's happening on a regular basis. Um, there are times of great, terrible persecution, both the brief one under Nero, when the Christians seem to be the scapegoats for the fire of Rome in AD 66, um, possibly under Domitian, though we're not quite sure about that towards the end of the century. Um, but then one or two subsequent ones, um, particularly not long before Constantine becomes emperor. So um, I want to say, in all historical situations, some people exaggerate sometimes, and it is perfectly possible that some of the early Christian writers, in their eagerness to show how they were victims, etc., may have exaggerated. Eusebius may well have done that in order to highlight the difference between pre- and post-Constantine. That doesn't mean there wasn't a problem. Sure. It doesn't mean that Christians were normally accepted, because they basically weren't. Um, but the non-acceptance would wouldn't necessarily mean violent persecution. It might mean that they lost jobs. It might mean that they had to move out of town in a hurry. It might mean that their children were not welcome at certain festivities and whatever it is. Um, and so that there are levels and levels of persecution of social stigma and so on, um, sometimes bursting out into open violence and sometimes not. Um, I, I think, however, 
it's rather a modern thing to say, oh, these Christians, they were all, always exaggerating. Um, that's rather a way of saying we're not going to take these Christian claims too seriously. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Candida Moss is writing out of a situation where in America some Christian groups are saying, look at the persecution mm. of Christians all around the world today. Therefore, it shows that we are the innocent victims, etc., etc. Actually, there is persecution of Christians going on around the world today, thoroughly well documented, thoroughly historically reliable. That doesn't mean that Christians therefore have the moral high ground in everything that they ever want to do. We've got to be wise and careful about how we do that. So I would want to situate Candida Moss herself within a modern North American context where some Christians are overly enthusiastic about telling the story of martyrdoms, etc. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And uh, yes, a lesson for us all, I suppose, to... to be aware that we, we, we may be called to make similar sacrifices. Who knows? Oh, uh, as yeah, those absolutely. I mean, we, we've had it easy in the West, mm. and there are reasons for that, mm. that we have colluded with the Enlightenment mm. ideology, and so the Enlightenment doesn't bother about us. <laughs> we'll be back again next time. Thank you very much, Tom, for being with me. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on today's show. Next time, your questions on marriage, including some really interesting questions such as, does the church make an idol of marriage? Someone who's come to Christ recently has got in touch but is unmarried to their partner and they have children. What should they do? They're asking. And another interesting one from someone married to a Christian, both Christians, but where they've gone in very different directions when it comes to their views on faith and politics. So some of the questions that will be coming up on marriage next week. Don't forget that you can find lots of Tom's teaching from this year's Unbelievable Conference with the links from today's show. And SBCK Tom's UK publisher have some special deals on Tom's books for podcast listeners all the links are with the show notes and if you want more from the show askntwrite.com is the place to go if you feel able to support us you can do that from there as well we'll send you the show ebook 12 questions on the bible life and faith again that's askntwrite.com see you next time Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.